The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. Phone lines are open. You've got questions. We've got answers. Let's do it. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. The phone lines are wide open. Any question of any kind that pertains in any way to anything we ever talk about on the line of fire or pertains in any way to anything I've ever said, written, had guests on, anything at all, you want to talk to me about 866-343. So if, if you'd like my prediction as to how Tiger Woods is going to do in the Masters, nah, that's not our subject matter. Or if, if you want my weather projection for the Northeast in the next 10 days, no, that's not my area of expertise. But there are a host of things we can talk to you about, especially those who differ, those who raise questions on intranet or challenge me on different things. I'd love to hear from you. I'm not threatened or bothered by your questions in the least. We're broadcasting this day from our studio at Mercy Culture in Fort Worth, Texas. Great to be down. I had an awesome week in Texas. 866-348-7884. The earlier in the show you call, the better chance we have of getting to your call. With that, we will start in Corpus Christi, Texas. David, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, hey Dr. Dr. Brown. Brown. Hey. So, so glad, glad to, uh, uh, you know, you just call in, in and I'm enjoying your book, Playing with Holy Fire. Fire. Thank you. Uh, and I just want to bring up some a topic because it grieves me. You know these these people who say, "Hey, look at my great faith!" Right, wearing three thousand dollars shoes or driving Bentleys and such like that. And it grieves me. This is what people brag in when Paul bragged about his weakness and his infirmities. And this is such an epidemic in the body of Christ, especially here in America. Uh, so, what would you? say to all of us out here who want to say, hey, who are the leaders who really have faith? You know, the ones who, who no matter what, they, they go to it. Because I, I think we really need some clarity from somebody like you on this issue. Well, well, thanks for the question. So first, there is a carnal prosperity message that is spread from America to other nations that has caused tremendous destruction. Uh, David, Wilkinson's, David Wilkinson's words to me in the 90s, uh, that the, the carnal prosperity message was, came from the pit of hell, and is this notion that the sign of spirituality is earthly riches, that Jesus died to make us rich, and that's what the gospel is about. Of course, that's a perversion of the gospel. I believe in God's provision. I believe in God's abundance. I believe in a spirit of generosity, but that is very, very different from the carnal prosperity message, which makes earthly riches as a spiritual goal as opposed to growing in Jesus and becoming more like him and, and being a disciple and making disciples and glorifying the Lord as, as the goals for which we live. And, and yes, there is an instance uh, that, that you referenced where there was a famous American preacher in India, and this was well, a little before 1993 or early 1993 when I first went there, and the brothers were grieved over it. They said, here's a guy telling us about faith. We know faith. We, we care for orphans. We we reach out in areas where there's no funding, and God provides for us. And here he is boasting in India about his $3,000 custom-made shoes, 
whereas a, a laborer working the fields would make maybe a dollar a day. So, so they were offended by that, and there was the lack of cultural sensitivity on, on the part of the preacher even to recognize that. Uh, again, it's not a sign of spirituality to be poor. It's not a sign of spirituality to wear shoes with holes in them. It, it doesn't glorify the Lord where you can't help the poor and the needy because you have nothing yourself. So, uh, again, let God provide through us to touch the world, but the carnal prosperity message has been very destructive and has spread through much of the world, in Africa, India, other parts of the world, it has been very destructive and has gotten people looking in, for the wrong things in the wrong direction. As, as, uh, as for who are the people with faith, they're fine leaders all over America. They're godly pastors. They're evangelists reaching out to the lost. They're people caring for the poor. And I'm not here to, to list names of famous people who are fine Christian leaders, but rather to say, Look for those in your communities that are reliable, that have a steady record of being Jesus followers without scandal, who, uh, whether the church is big with all glitz with it or small or meeting in a house, that's not the big issue. The issue is the quality of that person's life, the example that they set, the message that they bring, the fruit from their ministries. Look to that. And if those of us who have national or international platforms can be a blessing. Again, look at our lives, look at the fruit that we've borne, see the impact we're having on, on people, and, and let that be a God. But thankfully, there are far, far more godly leaders, humble leaders, serious servants of the Lord out there than the flamboyant flakes, than the carnal prosperity superstars. But the bad apples give all the other apples a bad reputation. A scandal in a megachurch or with a major ministry gets a whole lot more attention than your local pastor faithfully serving a flock for 20 or 30 years. They're far more faithfully serving than there are getting into all these kinds of serious errors. I'm talking about on a major level. But it's best to know them through relationship and, and through track record over a period of years. Hey, David, I appreciate the call. By the way, uh, I'll go back to the phones in a moment. We've got some lines open. Often early in the show, we don't. So we do have some lines open if you want to get hold of us now. Uh, but I saw a thread on Twitter the other day, and somehow my name came up mentioned in it. And the thread was, was about uh, some mocker had, uh, had, had made the, uh, the comment that uh, if uh, some gal said, if, if I want to get rich, I'm going to become a Christian apologist. And someone else commented and said, hey, here are all these well-known apologists. None of them are rich. It's like, well, they attack Robbie Zacharias and he's worth thus and such. And then someone put a list up and said, hey, these people are not in it for money. And then somehow my name came up. And then someone said, well, I just went online and searched and Browns has a net worth of, of $24 million. <laughs> Well, I, I found another site that my net worth is $7 billion. <laughs> Would that it would be so because we'd give it away uh, to ministries around the world. But, but and anyway... I mean, I, who knows where they come up with these things? I, I told somebody, when my net worth hurts a million, I'll, I'll tell the whole world, I'll announce it. But, but in any case, there's all kinds of misinformation uh, about people online. And, and you want to get to the truth. Don't just believe everything you read or see in a video. Do the research. But people should be known among you. So I'm known among the people with whom I've worked for decades. And we have these close relationships and track records. You know me from a distance, right? 
But ideally, you want to get to know the leaders that you really work with in terms of giving your life to a cause, serving together. And you do that through being part of community with them as much as possible. 866-348-7884. Let's go to Kevin in Wichita, Kansas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Um, I have a, a friend who has, he's kind of critical of Zionism. Um, he says he's not anti-Semitic, um, but he's kind of anti-Zionist and anti a number of political things regarding Israel. And he's brought up that a number of rabbis feel that Israel isn't a legitimate state because it was established by men rather than by God. And that's not something I've quite heard of, and I don't know how to address it. Right. So before the founding of the modern state of Israel, the most prominent religious Jews, the the ultra-Orthodox rabbis leading their communities, were for the most part hostile to the idea of a modern state of Israel being birthed. Uh, their feeling was that this is something the Messiah will do. When the Messiah comes, he will regather the exiles and bring them back to the land. When the Messiah comes, he will rebuild the temple. This is the work of the Messiah. For people to do it will be getting in the way of his work. That was one concern. A second concern was that it could be potentially a, a secular state, and if it was a secular state, that would be the exact opposite of God's ideal, which was to be a, a Torah-centered, God-centered state or nation. And then there was a, a third concern. This was the least uh, on the list, but that if you went ahead and set up a state of Israel before its time, it would just create more anti-Semitism, more hatred of the Jewish people worldwide. There is even a Talmudic reference of three vows that... that that God had Israel live under, again, it's just a rabbinic tradition, but one of those was that they would not regather in mass to the land. They would not all try to come up in mass to the land. So uh, a, a regathering of exiles before the Messianic era would violate that vow. There are groups called uh, Niture Karta, which is literally the keepers of the city in Aramaic. And they, they are... Uh, by the way, just for everyone listening on radio, podcast, everything's good, but all of you watching on, on live stream on Facebook and YouTube, I understand that what you have is moving lips without sound. We don't know why. I have no clue why, but our team is looking into it now. So hopefully soon enough we'll be able to do that. Uh, maybe I could put up a sign, hold up a sign, call. Yeah, in fact... Folks, if, if you write up a sign uh, for those watching on live stream, if anybody's still there, watching me move, all right? And we'll do that during the break. I'll just put up a sign so you can still call. Unfortunately, I, I don't know sign language, or I would tell you. But um, that also explains why, well, hardly any phone lines open. But, but anyway, Niture Karta, these are ultra-Orthodox Jews. To this day, they are militantly opposed to the modern state of Israel. They would rather work with Yasser Arafat then they would work with the Prime Minister of Israel, okay, in, in days past. And there are many religious Jews within Israel who are hostile to the state because it is more secular, because Jewish law is not enforced throughout the entire country, and, and that even though they live there, they are not Zionists. Uh, but what changed a lot of opinion was the Holocaust. The absolute horrors of the Holocaust two out of every three Jews in Europe slaughtered. 
some of these large ultra-Orthodox communities that were anti-Zionist slaughtered. Three million out of 3.3 million Polish Jews, nine out of every 10 Polish Jews killed. That this changed some of the sentiment and other rabbis recognized we do need a homeland. And others had been saying in advance, hey, this is part of the Messianic era. In other words, we begin to come back and then the Messiah kind of takes it from there and finishes the work. So many, many religious Jews today do recognize the modern state of Israel as God birthed and part of the, the harbinger of the Messianic era. But there are many others who do not, and those are the reasons for it. Kevin, thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH, we will be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. What's happening just six days from now? April 14th, what's happening? Ah, that's it. Yes, National Not Ashamed of Jesus Day. It's all about you and me telling the world on this particular day, we're here we're not ashamed. We love Jesus and we love you. We're not hiding in the shadows. We're not avoiding the truth. We love you. We're here to share Jesus. Let your light shine on that day. You say, well, what specifically can I do? Go to notashamedofjesus.org. Notashamedofjesus.org. It'll give you plenty of ideas. If you're a pastor or leader, it'll give you plenty of ideas. You can still share it with your congregation on Sunday. Get the word out social media. We've got lots of churches, lots of networks joining in to do this. We believe it's a great way to push back against the cancel culture, a great way to push back against the silencing of the lambs, a great way to push back against this attempt to marginalize us and muzzle us. This is a day in particular where we, we get the word out that we're here. You may find out there are many other believers in the workplace or in the school that you didn't know about. It may open a door for you to share the gospel with others. So make sure you go to notashamedofjesus.org. And post that on social media today. Would you if, you, if you feel good about it, join us in doing that. All right, seems that we are back uh, with our video on the screen and our audio on live stream. If, if it's not synchronized correctly, it's always a new challenge. It's amazing. But here we are. Hopefully, everyone can hear me loudly and clearly. All right, let's go back to the phones with Jennifer in Colorado. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Yes, hello. Hey. Hi, thank you so much. I have kind of a complicated question that I wrote down to write to ask more sufficiently. So um, I know that many people have kind of guesses of what was written in the sand with the woman that was to be stoned in John chapter 8. And there is a verse in Jeremiah 17 that refers to those who reject the hope of Israel. Their names will be written in the earth. But... The, it goes on to say that they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And that's kind of the reference that gets me questioning a little bit more, because in John 7:38, which is just the previous chapter, it says, you know, that out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Right. And 
my question is kind of twofold. Could this refer to um, to also Jeremiah two thirteen? <laughs> um, it says, "For my people have committed two evils; they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water." And the real meat of my question is that: do, Is it possible that that reference could be during the festival of Sukkot? Because the broken cisterns that hold no water refer to the water libation ceremony and the fact that that wasn't Torah? Or is it even possible that Jeremiah would be referring to that ceremony? Okay, uh, it's unlikely that Jeremiah is referring to the ceremony. The image of God being a fountain of living water is is something that it's an image. Uh, He presents himself, if you look in Jeremiah 2, in many, many different figures. And he he is a husband to Israel, which is a straying wife, and... There's just other, other ways mm-hmm. he presents himself. So in a society where, where living water, which means uh, just generically is, is running water, is free-flowing free streams and things like that, so for God to be the source of that, the fountain of that, uh, the imagery is very clearly understood. That's why in John 4, as Jesus is talking to them about living water, she doesn't get it initially because Mayim Chaim would just mean running water somewhere. Like as as opposed to a stationary right. well, a stream, and he says, "No, no, I'm talking about something spiritual." So in John seven, when when he when he then says, "If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink," that's in conjunction with Sukkot tabernacles and the water procession that they'd have daily, where where the priests would be walking uh, towards the temple with these massive jugs of water. So that's sure. what he's contrasting. As for tying in uh, the end of John seven into John eight. That that's as fascinating as it is in Jeremiah 17, perhaps you know tying in with the writing and, and the earth and all that. That would be the most speculative part because the, the earliest manuscripts sure. of John do not have John 8 1 through 11 there. Uh, that passage huh. is in some one early tradition is found in the Gospel of Luke, and in others is just an independent tradition. So it doesn't seem that in the hmm. earliest copies of John that John 8 1 through 11 was actually there. We do believe it's scripture, but as to that exact location, uh, it, it's debatable. As to the meaning of Jeremiah 17, um, it, it's interesting. The, the, um, uh, the New Jewish Publication Society translation uh, says, uh, those in the land who turn from you shall be doomed, and then it explains it uh, saying uh, literally inscribed, and the meaning of the Hebrew is, is, is uncertain, but it reads it differently. It's those in the land who turn from you shall be doomed. And I'm just looking at it. Mm. Um, it, it doesn't s- talk about writing something in the dirt. So uh, it just, just the Hebrew mm. does not speak of that. So I don't believe that, that whatever Jesus wrote in the dirt, that it would tie in with uh, Jeremiah 17, 13. The Hebrew is definitely speaking about something else being inscribed in, in the earth, your name's written or something like that. Some, some signification of doom and judgment. All right, uh, back to the phones. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's uh, hang on. Let's go to um, Michael in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. Um, So I just have a quick question. So recently I was baptized, and uh, (laughs) I I was praying silently to myself while the pastor was talking. So, um, firstly, I didn't hear him say in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so um, I don't know if it was said at all. And secondly, 
Um, I didn't verbally confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior um, just because I wasn't asked, and I also didn't know I was I was supposed to. Um, is the baptism valid, or to, to, I, I couldn't find anywhere scripturally where people were ever rebaptized. So, right. So, when you were baptized, uh, was it understood that you were doing this to make a public profession of your faith? Yes. Right. So, the purpose of your baptism, there were other people there as witnesses. Yes, the whole church. Right. So, the whole church knew that you, Michael, were making a public profession of your faith, that you are a follower of Jesus, and your life belongs to him, correct? Uh, yes, I would assume that that's what they thought, yeah. Right, okay. Well, then, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Uh, all right, thank you so much. Oh, yeah, also, yeah. can I don't, don't... question? Yeah, go ahead. Um, does, it, does it matter if um, people are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or if it's in the name of Jesus Christ? There are people who try to claim, Jesus-only people, who try to claim if you are not baptized in the name of Jesus, it's not valid. Uh, that position is to be rejected. The, the clear teaching in Matthew 28, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in the earliest traditions we have in the church, that's how it was done. You say, well, is it invalid if I was baptized in Jesus' name? No, I don't believe it was invalid if the, under, the understanding was the same, that this is a public profession, I, I've died to sin, I now live to God, I go under the water, and I come up in, in newness of, of life. That's what baptism is symbolizing. And people would point to the book of Acts. I do believe that the book of Acts should be understood in the light of Matthew 28, and that people, the, the Greek prepositions are different, being baptized into Jesus, or into the name of Jesus, or upon the name of Jesus. Some say the, the person being baptized was, was calling out in the name of Jesus, and they were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Some say it means being baptized into Jesus, into the body of Christ. But if someone said, hey, I was baptized in Jesus' name, do I need to be rebaptized?" I would tell them no. And all the more would I tell them no if they say, well, I was told I had to be baptized in Jesus' name. I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Should I be baptized again? Absolutely not. However, if you were baptized as a baby and then came to faith later in life, I would say absolutely get baptized. Because what happened to you as a baby was not determinative and was not based on your profession of faith. And the New Testament is clear, repent and believe, excuse me, repent and be baptized, believe and be baptized. So in that case, I would say the first baptism doesn't count because it's for an infant. You should be baptized once you come to faith. But be at peace, Michael. If, if you were asked, if you were asked to make a public profession and refused, no, I'm ashamed, then it wouldn't be valid and you wouldn't have been baptized. But you just went along with the, the, the right as best as you understood it. Hey, Michael, thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Taylor in somewhere. I just noticed I don't have a location. Where are you calling from, Taylor? Uh, Woodland Park, Colorado. All right. Well, welcome to the broadcast in Woodland Park, Colorado. Thanks for the call. Awesome. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Michael Brown. I appreciate you taking my call, and I just appreciate your ministry, uh, everything that you're doing. And um, about three weeks ago, you actually had this on the broadcast. Uh, you were talking about um, just what it takes, I guess, for people to be born again, or like, how do you know you're saved? Um, and I know you've touched on these related issues of like somebody who submits to JDS, which is Jesus died spiritually, and born-again Jesus views, 
Um, so my question is, would that person be saved um, if they, you know, believe something like that? It's like, I guess I come to like the uh, verse that's found in Acts 13. It's like verses 30 through 36, where Paul was concerning Jesus's resurrection from the dead. And then he quotes Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. If you could touch on that just a little bit. Right, so there, there are a, a couple of different subjects there. But the second one, I know you're relating them as one, but they're, they're really separate, the idea of, quote, Jesus dying spiritually in hell or being born again in hell and then being proclaimed as God's son. This is a public proclamation. Romans, Romans 1 is indicating to us that the resurrection is God's public proclamation of Jesus as his son. And Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. It's not saying he became the son of God there because he was born again in hell. But I'll come back to your question on the other side of the break. Stay right here. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us on the Line of Fire. Phone lines are wide open, 866-348-7884. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. Any question of any kind that relates to anything we ever discuss on the Line of Fire broadcast, by all means, give us a call. Okay, so we did a, a teaching a couple of weeks ago and asked, what must we believe about Jesus in order to be saved? In other words, can we just say, well, I think he's a good moral example, a human being like everybody else, but a good moral example? No, obviously not. Well, I believe he's the last of the great prophets, but clearly not the son of God. Can you be saved and believe that? Obviously not. How can you confess him as Lord if that's what you believe about him? So we tried to lay out the, the minimum foundation for what must be believed to be, for someone to be saved. So what about this teaching that Jesus went to hell, right? So not, not only died on the cross, but went to hell. Well, there is discussion about Jesus going into the netherworld for various reasons. The New Testament talks about him proclaiming to the spirits in prison. There are ancient church confessions that speak about him, go, quote, going to hell. So that, to me, is not a disqualifying issue to say that, he, that, that between his death and his resurrection that he descended into the netherworld. What if someone said, we believe he suffered in the netherworld, as opposed to he simply took the wrath of God on the cross, but he suffered in the netherworld? That, to me, is going to be much more debatable. Some would say, well, Psalm says that the, the, the pains of death couldn't hold him, so he was suffering on some level in the netherworld. Okay, that is not going to be more controversial. And some would say, well, no, that's all part of the cross. That's all part of him dying for us. So do we draw the line there? If someone says, and this is the, some of those bizarre teaching I've ever heard, and I've heard it in some extreme word of faith circles, that Jesus died in hell and became a demonized human being and was resurrected as a son of God. That's heresy. That is outright heresy. Now, if someone says, oh, no, no, he paid for our sins on the cross. This is just what happened in the netherworld. It's still heresy. 
okay? You're, you're teaching something false. Can someone who holds to that be saved? To me, it's heresy. It's very plainly heresy and a denial of his eternal deity, that at some point he ceased to be God and was now born again as a glorified man. That's heresy. If someone is confused about that, but says, no, I believe he died for my sins, and that's the heart and soul of it. He died for my sins and rose from the dead, but this is what I think happened in another world. Okay, you throw that out, okay? It's dangerous. Throw it out. I'm not going to say you're not saved if you're confused about that, but if you think that that's fundamental to the atonement, and in particular, if you teach that at any point Jesus ceased to be God, that's heresy. Rank heresy. That's simple. And must be categorically rejected in the clearest possible term. Hey, thank you, Taylor, for raising that question. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. Let's go to Bill in Cape Coral, Florida. Welcome to the line of fire. Cape Coral, sorry, Florida. Welcome to the line of fire. No, actually, Dr. Brown, you had it right the first time. Cape Coral. All right, so uh, I grew up here in Cape Coral. That was just our New York mispronunciation. There's only one R instead of two, but it's just west of Fort Myers, in case you know where that is. Yeah, yeah, Fort Myers. I've been there many a time to minister. Good friend there. Yes. Okay. All right, well, my wife and I have just moved here as part of our retirement. We've been following you for several years now and are torchbearers. Thank you. Really uh, thrilled to, to, to make make use of the resources you have made available to us. What my question is now is <clears throat> the church that we've affiliated with, I've just learned that they don't uh, make members of anybody who comes here. There's no differentiate between being an attendee or a co- member of the congregation, and there's no member policy. And they said, because it's not biblical. So I'm wondering, based on your you know expertise with the ancient Greek, is that biblical or not? Okay. I understand arguments for and against. One of my closest friends says church membership is not biblical. It's not a matter of the nuances of the Greek. In other words, you can get the exact same understanding just reading the English. The argument would be that to have a membership that is based on, okay, you you tithe or you do this, you attend this number, you know, all of these other requirements— that's not in the Bible. What's in the Bible is you become joined to a fellowship of believers. In other words, the, the standard of commitment and fellowship in the New Testament is very high. And people can attend and just go there, but if they are really organically part of the body, they are, they are organically part. They are deeply joined together. Now, personally, I find church membership practical because you are saying to people, hey, we would love to make a deeper commitment to you as leaders if you feel to make a deeper commitment to us. In other words, if this is your home, then we feel the sacred responsibility to care for you. Uh, for, for example, if, if you have uh, an emergency within your own family, somebody needs to, to be rushed to the hospital in your own family, and there's someone down the street that you met one time that needs a ride somewhere, it's like, hey, I'd love to help you, but I got to get my family to the hospital. You know, there's a Paul says, if you don't care for your own, meaning your own family, you're worse than an infidel. So many times people right. say, leaders say, hey, look, you're welcome to come here the rest of your life. Take in all the services, listen to the messages, send your kids to Sunday school. But if you want a deeper commitment here where we can be more involved in your lives, where you're financially helping with the work here and, 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 and we're working together for the gospel of the community— then church membership in that sense can be super practical. Those who say it's not biblical, 
basically say that should be happening organically. It's not written on a piece of paper where you have a role. It's basically a spiritual thing in God's sight. So if this is where you go, this is where you give, this is where you serve, this is where you grow, just do it organically. And in, in churches that have that philosophy, there normally is that deeper place. In other words, it just, it just happens naturally. Like a couple dating mm-hmm. that gets close and falls in love. It just happens naturally. So it wouldn't concern me if they, if they hammer it. Church membership is unbiblical, and this is a major thing they hammer in. Now, that can be, okay, why, why do you need to do that? But if they just say, hey, just become part of our family. We don't have a paper to sign, but we'll get to know you. You'll get to know us. We participate together. Then that can be great. That can be fine. As long as there's that ability to go deeper together. That's the key thing. Yeah, I look at involvement in a church with three levels. You've got the um, person who's involved. You've got the one who's committed. And then the third level, which is the most intense, is truly engaged. And um, I often use the ham and egg omelet example, is that when you think of a ham and egg omelet, the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. And when both of them come to you and say, I want to be part of your breakfast, that's engaged. Got it, got it. Yeah, so so the thing... Yeah, so the, the thing is, those are, those are great analogies, and the ham and egg, what I'll, I'll have to remember that. I, I don't only think in terms of ham and egg omelets, so I'll have, to, I'll have to remember that. But in point of fact, sir, as long as the church functions in such a way that those that really become engaged are engaged and the leaders are engaged with you, uh, that there is that deeper place of commitment, you, you can't find that, those levels that you mentioned, you can't find that explicitly written out in the Bible, right, in the Greek or in the English, etc. But on a practical level, there, there are those different aspects of being part of a body. So, no, I do not find the concept of, quote, become a member of a local church as something explicitly taught in Scripture. But I absolutely find the call to be organically, closely connected to a group of believers involved in their lives uh, under leadership, working together for the for God's purposes in that community. So hopefully that'll work out where you are. God bless you, Bill. Appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Dominic in Australia. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, hi, Dr. Michael Brown. Uh, I just had a question about um, what, what like forms of entertainment should we avoid watching? Like, is it okay for a Christian to watch Harry Potter or or a trashy reality TV show? Like, how, how should we go about uh, what to avoid in, in the entertainment industry? Yes, uh, it's, it's a very good question. There are certain things that are personal choices because the Bible does not explicitly address it. There are other things where the Bible does give us very, very clear guidelines. Anything that pollutes us, anything that defiles us, any, anything that is displeasing in the Lord's sight, in other words, if I'm willfully taking in something that is destructive, sinful, obviously I've got to avoid that. I would encourage you to read through Ephesians 5, 1 through 16, and meditate on that, Ephesians 5, 1 through 16. Harry Potter, people will debate. Others say, no way. Absolutely not. You stay away from it. That's sorcery, that's witchcraft, that's glorifying demonic things. 
Others would say, no, it's no different than like a C.S. Lewis book or, or Lord of the Rings with Tolkien or their spiritual images and their lessons to learn from it. And so let's just say there's a difference of opinion about that. There could be no difference of opinion about watching some X-rated movie or something that, that glorifies gratuitous violence or that uses profanity for entertainment and things like that. Those are defiling unclean. Now, I may be watching a documentary learning in history, and it's, it's got unsafe people, and they're using profanity as a talk. I don't like it, but I'm trying to learn something, and that's, that's the accessible information. But to be entertained by it would be sinful and wrong. You can ask the larger question, does this enhance my walk with the Lord or take me away from the Lord? You could ask the larger question, is this light or is this darkness? Certain things are very blatant. Others make those personal choices. I couldn't imagine watching trashy reality TV unless I was trying to learn what was happening in the culture, and I'd be repulsed and grieved the whole time. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us today on The Line of Fire. Remember, April 14th, six days from now, if you're watching, listening live, National Not Ashamed of Jesus Day. Go to notashamedofjesus.org. Spread the word. We've just got six days to get this out. It's our very first year doing it so it's just getting started but we believe this is something that could be greatly encouraging and lead to a lot of great evangelism on that day not ashamed of jesus.org all right we go back to the phones marion in detroit michigan welcome to the line of fire dr brown how you doing this it's actually marlin but how, how are you I, i'm doing um, great yeah i i apologize it's probably typewritely but my eyesight missed it thanks marlin no yeah, no problem at all. Dr. Brown, what do you think of the Bible Project? And secondly, I saw a video pop up that was criticizing it, and I was thinking, what's a biblical approach to, if you disagree with someone, do you put out a video against their video? What's the approach? But the first one is, what do you think about Bible Project? I just wanted to get your opinion. Right, so it's, it's become mega-popular got millions of, of downloads and views online, from what I understand. And as far as I can tell, the few clips that I've watched, it's only a few, uh, unfortunately I haven't followed it my cl more closely, we're, we're pretty mainstream in their teaching. You know, I'm, I might have mm -hmm. diff differed with a, a nuance here or there, but from what I could tell, it seemed to be fairly mainstream. I, I mm -hmm. remember hearing some criticism, a friend was filling me in on it, and they were, I don't know, considered to have a wrong view on a certain subject or liberal or woke, yep. I, whatever that was. The few videos that I watched were just basic Bible stuff in a good animated way and a simplified mm -hmm. way presenting overviews of books or key themes, etc. But I have not dug into it. So if there's more to it, if there are legitimate questions, I'm not aware of that. All right. From what I saw, it was pretty much meat and potatoes kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. let's just say, though, that here's the Bible project. And video comes out on a particular theological subject, and it gets a half million views in, in three months, and you're a pastor and you're watching it, and you think, well, that's wrong. That's terribly wrong. Okay, what's the, 
right approach. You think, wow, a lot of people are watching it or one of my videos and it gets 50,000 views. And like, wow, Dr. Brown's wrong on this and he's, he's misleading people. That's what you believe. Okay, so if you have any connection to the people, if you know the people, if someone knew me, the right thing is to contact me. If you know someone right. in the Bible Project, you reach out to them. However, you are not obligated when someone puts out a public position to go to them privately before you address okay. it publicly. They didn't ask for your permission when they put it out, right? So mm. uh, in other words, if it's public information, let's, let's just say mm. Rick Warren is, is on MSNBC doing an interview, right? Mm -hmm. And he mm -hmm. says something that is very controversial. And someone calls my show and says, hey, I, I saw Rick Warren say that, what do you think of it? Well, it's a public statement made in a public setting. Mm -hmm. So what a gracious way I'll interact. Boy, I think it was great. No, here's why I differ with it. Now, if I knew him, right, and I heard about mm -hmm. it, I would immediately reach out to him. Hey, Rick, what's going on here, man? You said such mm -hmm. and such, right? But w when I write a book and I put out a position, people can write a whole book differing with me. That's fine. Mm -hmm. That's, have at it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's public, right? Um, so it's different than Matthew 18. If your brother sins against him, go tell him in private. This is not you sinned against me. I have to go tell you in private. This is, you said something to a million people that I differ with, and now I, I want to protect my flock with that. So what you, you want to do things with the right spirit. That's the key thing. Yes. You want to be fair in what you represent. You don't want to draw conclusions beyond what you're dealing with. In other words, this may just be one teaching that's aberrant. I'm not going to make a judgment on the larger thing. I'm not going to engage mm -hmm. in character assassination. But if someone says right. something blatantly false, then as a, as a steward, as a teacher, you, you want to fix that. You want to correct it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's perfectly fine, especially if you don't have access to people. I, I'm, I'm a, a leader with international connections, but there are people I've tried to get to it that they won't talk to me. I've tried to reach mm -hmm. out to them privately and, and, and be gracious to do it before correcting them publicly, but they mm -hmm. won't talk to me. All right, well, I've got to deal with this publicly. I'm burdened to do it. It's an issue. I've got to help the people involved. Other times, there's another way to do it, which is just address the issue, right? Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. controversy over this issue. I want, to, I want to do a teaching on it without saying brother so-and-so said it or it was this project. That's the other way to do it is just to correct the issue and, and deal, deal with the facts. But by all means, it's out in the public, public square, Address it. That's fair game. Totally fair game. All right? Thanks, Dr. Brown. You are very welcome, sir. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. And we go to John in Cincinnati, Ohio. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you today? Doing well. Thank you. Hey, I've got a question because I was listening to you talk about church membership earlier. Yeah. And, um, and, I, and I disagree to a certain degree. Uh, I'm Catholic. So, and I've never listened to you before, but I was curious to, you know, we talk about, we read, read the Bible, it talks about Jesus founding a church, the gates of hell will, you know, not prevail against this church. You know, yep. Jesus is fully human, fully God, so he's physical, uh, he, you know, so the church is physical and spiritual. So, as a Protestant, and like I said, it's the first time listening to you, what's the, the reasoning for, say, being Protestant uh, versus being Catholic, and I think you know the Catholic Church is the church that Jesus founded. Two thousand years later, you know the church is the church is the church. There may be a little disagreement, but the truth is the truth. 
truth is the truth. So I was just curious your take on that and your, yeah, your sure. position as a Protestant. Yeah, yeah, sure. Very, very easy to answer. Uh, first, I was raised uh, in a Jewish home. We were not religious Jews, but I was raised in a Jewish home in Bar Mitzvah. And Judaism teaches that we have the Bible, but then we have the authority of the rabbis and that they are the, the true expositors of Scripture. So you have the Bible plus tradition. That's how you understand the Bible. It's similar to Catholicism in that you have the Bible plus church tradition, and the church is seen as the rightful interpreter of the Bible. We both agree the Bible is God's Word, correct? Yes. All right, so when I see church tradition violate the Word, or add to the Word, or take away from the Word, then I have to reject that tradition. So that's why I'm not Catholic, because I find many of the traditions to be contrary to the Bible, or adding to the Bible, or taking away from the Bible, and you know, even forbidding priests to marry. I, I find that is utterly unscriptural, and even contrary to God's principles and what's best, and, and that's one reason I believe you have as many scandals as you do in the Catholic Church, is because of that unbiblical teaching about priests, nuns have to be uh, unmarried, that opens the door for all kinds of disaster. Or the exaltation of Mary, which I find very contrary to Scripture, or doctrines like the infallibility of the Pope, or uh, other aspects, you know, the, the, the nature of mass, purgatory and things, uh, I don't find as scriptural. So I, I have friends of mine who are Catholic and, and love the Lord, and as far as I know are, are born again, and we agree on many fundamentals. But the church that Jesus is building, and let, if you're right, then all the, the Greek and Russian Orthodox in the world, they're not part of the real church. And the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of Protestants are not part of the real church. I, I see the church that Jesus is building as far bigger than the walls of a Catholic church or the walls of a Greek Orthodox church or the walls of a Protestant church or anything like that. I see them as far, far bigger than that. And, and it is a real body that he knows and he can identify those that are truly his. And in fact, it says in, in second Timothy, uh, that the foundation God is building is secure, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, so he knows his true church, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So it's our turning away from sin. So what I'd encourage you to do is read the Bible afresh, and as you're, you're reading it, just see if there's something that it teaches that the Catholic Church doesn't teach. Put a question mark, ask why, or conversely, if the church is teaching something and you're reading a verse that seems to be contrary to that verse, mark that down. And, and then ask yourself the question, what has the great, greatest authority? Does church tradition have the ability to rewrite Scripture, to add to Scripture, to take away from Scripture, to reinterpret Scripture? Or must the traditions of the church be tested by the Word? Hey, thank you, John, for the call. Uh, glad you're listening and tuning in. And let's get to know each other better through the show. I'm, I'm sure there'll be a ton that we do agree on. Appreciate the call. Do I have time for one more? Uh, all right, I'm going to try quickly. Joseph in Washington State, time is short. Dive right into your question, please. Hi, Michael. Hey. Hey, um, I, I want to share that... Uh, and I want to see what, how you feel. Every every morning when I wake up, I say I, I practice self discipline. I say to myself, when I leave my house this morning, I will do a selfless act for another human being, for an animal, or for the earth. 
And so if I see a piece of litter on the ground, I pick it up and I throw it in the trash and I show, I show mercy to the one that threw it on the ground. And, and, and these are the things I do. And before I drink coffee, I thank my Heavenly Father for creating coffee beans. Then I drink my coffee. Before I drink my water, and we have two dogs or Kelavim, and I feed them before we, my wife and I eat. So that way they know they're getting food. So this is how I walk in my life every day. And even when I go outside and walk the dogs and I see a squirrel or a bird or a deer or a bunny, I say, Tell you what, Joseph, you're on a run there, but I got to cut you off. I, I wanted to get to your question, uh, but let us glorify Jesus. And above all, let us share the good news. The greatest act of kindness we could do for someone is introduce them to Jesus. All right, friends. Not ashamed of Jesus.org. Just got six days. Not ashamed of Jesus.org. Another program powered by the Truth Network.